Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the Oak of Mori. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. So it's a big Sunday, obviously. Lots of things happening and swirling around this week. Uh, one of them was getting a call uh, from Katie Ducklow yesterday, thinking maybe this baby was coming, but bless little baby girl Ducklow. She held off so you could lead worship one more Sunday, which is we're very, very thankful for. Um, for that, and looking forward to Katie Jr. Uh, when we finally get to meet her. That's super exciting and a very unique. What? Who told me? Well, so I have my ways of, of finding out. And uh, so, you know, the excitement of birth and the anticipation, and then there's the uh, news that I got. I got a call this morning, actually, right during the first service. I happened to be in the office, got a phone call, and uh, found out if you're a, an Aldrich person who's been around for a while, uh, Gloria Halsley. Uh, passed away, uh, I think yesterday. So her obituary is in the Star Tribune. Uh, but Gloria was an amazing and faithful saint of God. And so um, as I sit here and think about everything that's transpiring in the life of this congregation and community, new life, old life, and, and, and the you know, strand that traces everything, the red thread that goes through everything, is God's faithfulness, God's commitment to us through all of it. And so we're starting a new sermon series called Committed, and we're going to be in it at least until Easter. 
And we're going to be following, at least for this year, um, something called the Narrative Lectionary. And the Narrative, lect- narrative Lectionary is this series of readings. It was developed by these professors at, uh, at Fuller, or not Fuller, I'm sorry, Luther Seminary right here in St. Paul. And their goal was to present scripture over the course of four years, give us the, the, get all the major stories and get us with this big overarching narrative so that we can see scripture for what it is, not this, you know, atomized collection of, of aphorisms or, you know, timeless truths and tales, but, but this grand overarching story how God is working in creation and in redemption and in renewing all creation. And so there's no better place when we're thinking about the story of God and, and thinking about, okay, how are we challenged by it and how are we invited to join in it than to start with the story of Abram and his wife Sarai. And as I preach through this, I'm going to go Abraham and I'm going to go Sarah. And so forgive me in advance um, for slipping up the names. But when we look at Abraham and, and the story of him and his family, but the singular figure of Abraham, it's almost impossible to overstate how important Abraham is to the course of human civilization. Jews, Christians, Muslims, we all claim to be children of Abraham. These are the three great Abrahamic faiths. There's that old church song, right? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, right arm, or you know, how, whichever body part uh, you want to start with, and you keep going through them all. And so, so Abraham, he, he, if you're a Christian, he is your father. You are his child. And it's crazy to think that all of this started with this passage here in Genesis 12, 4,000 years ago. You know, Jesus, Moses, Abraham, Paul, when you talk about sort of the four figures who have shaped the modern world, Abraham belongs not just in the conversation, he is on the Mount Rushmore of biblical figures. If we're in, are there five faces on Mount Rushmore or four? Four. Yep, that's the four right there. We can debate who else belongs. Maybe Mary. She might buy for a spot. I don't know. Uh, But I digress. So just to set this story up in some context, so the first 11 chapters of Genesis, those are what's called the primeval history. These are these big universal tales, kind of like the origin story of humanity. If we're watching a a, a comic book movie, this would be our origin story in a lot of ways. This is creation, you know, Adam and Eve, God spins the cosmos and speaks them um, into existence. And then there's the first human beings and they fall from grace. And then right away we get the first murder, which speaks to this, you know, inherent conflict uh, within human relations. And, and, and then we get Noah and his family and this flood that basically starts everything over and the rainbow across the sky. And, and, and then we get this tower in Babel that's being built to stretch up to the heavens. But when we get to chapter 11, it's the patriarchal history, or chapter 12, it's the patriarchal history. It's a pivot point. It goes from the universal to the particular. And it gets very, very, very particular with one man, Abram, and his family. And the reason that God does this is is that humankind had essentially at this point reached a dead end in the biblical story, right? That we had over and over again seen folks recommitting that most basic sin of all humankind, substituting ourselves for God. And these were dark days when we reach Abraham and his family. We're, we're told in Genesis 4, and this is one of those points when you're reading through, it's sort of easy to miss, but in Genesis 4, something happens that's remarkable. One of Adam and Eve's sons is named Seth, 
And then Seth has this son, Enosh. But it says right there in Genesis 4 that it's when Enosh was born that people began to call on the name of the Lord. So we see the emergence of true knowledge and worship of God. And there's 10 generations from Adam to Noah. So things got really bad there. This flame of faith was almost extinguished. And then 10 generations from Noah to Terah. And once again, this flame of knowledge and faith are about to be extinguished. In the book of Joshua, it says, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abram and Naor, and they served other gods. So Terah's name itself is actually a a tribute to an ancient Mesopotamian moon god. So the human situation when we get to Genesis 12 is this, that there was one family left that carried the flame of true knowledge and worship of God who had created everything. And that family itself by this point had fallen into idolatry and polytheism. And not only that, we're told that Abram's wife Sarai was barren. And barrenness means that there's no hope for the future. This is the end of the story. It's like the Terrence Malick film, Children of Men. We've reached the end of the story. What's going to happen? And this is the family that God chooses to work with to reverse the curse that has contaminated and it's predominated the first 11 chapters of Scripture. It's like this constant falling back into this cursedness and where there was supposed to be, you know, life and vitality and flourishing. There's sin, rebellion, death, and destruction. But God chooses this family, this couple, barren, old, wandering. It's not exactly the most promising bunch. But what it speaks to is the fact that humanity needs a new beginning. And the truth of the matter is this, is that humankind is utterly powerless to affect that new beginning using its own resources, all of our efforts apart from God and in barrenness. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann writes this in his his brilliant commentary on Genesis. And he writes this on the revolution that really takes place in Genesis 12, the revolution that comes into the story, into the narrative that erupts out of the blue. He says, here we stand before the most incredible announcement in the tradition of Israel. The family of Abraham has derived historically from natural antecedents as indicated in the genealogies of Genesis 10 and 11. But that natural derivation now results in nothing. It ends in barrenness. The reference to barrenness is cryptic and it seems to be only descriptive. There is no reflection on the cause, no suggestion that this barrenment is a punishment or a curse. It is simply reported that this family and with it the whole family of Genesis 1 through 11 has played out its future and has nowhere else to go. Barrenness is the way of human history. It is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. There is no foreseeable future. There is no human power to invent a future. But barrenness is not only the condition of hopeless humanity. The marvel of biblical faith is that barrenness is the arena of God's life-giving action. So that's the state of play as we come to our passage. Humanity, apart from God, is spent going nowhere, no future. It's lost and without hope in the world. It has reached a dead end. And so the question then is, what is God going to do about it? And the answer comes in Genesis 12, 1, in a single word, when God says to Abram, 
Go. Go. The call of God to Abram, this word out of the blue, it, it raises more questions than it answers. But God's answer to the universal problem of evil is to address one particular man and to use his family to reverse the curse and effect blessing. And blessing in Scripture is always flourishing. So the solution to the problem is election that elicits a response of faith in action. And before I get too far ahead of myself, I have to stop and ask this question that a lot of people ask when they've looked at God choosing Abraham to bear the blessing, you know, for the rest of the world. They go, well, why did God choose him? Why this man? Why this woman? Why this family? You know, the the Jewish people still to this day are called the chosen people. Well, why did they get chosen and not someone else? It doesn't seem fair. And so for centuries, commentators have been perplexed and puzzled by this. And some of the ancient rabbis came up with an explanation that I was first introduced to, actually, when I was a a seminary uh, chaplain intern in New Jersey. I was paying a visit on my floor to an elderly Jewish man, and I introduced myself. And he said, well, chaplain, what religion are you? And I told him I was a Protestant. And he spoke in this wonderful New York Jewish accent, New Jersey Jewish accent, straight out of central casting, And he said, ah, Abram, he was the first Protestant. And I said, well, do tell. This is, wow, how do you mean? And he said, he was the first to protest against the idol worshipers. And so I said, oh, cool, okay. And, you know, kind of carried on with the rest of my visit, as one would do. But in my study for this passage this week, I came across this story that he was referring to. And, and it's this old, ancient rabbinical interpretation which said that God chose Abraham because when he was still in Ur of the Chaldeans, he secretly smashed his father's idols. He was a closet monotheist. And because of that, God chose him. He, of all the people on the earth and of of his family, had not forsaken the God of his ancestors and given himself over to idolatry. And while that explanation is not in the text, and and I personally don't find it compelling, I understand where it comes from. There's this natural human tendency to think that if God chooses someone, it must be because there's something worthy in them, something about their character something about their personality, something about their integrity that makes them worthy of God choosing to work through them. But here's the scandal of grace already right here in Genesis 12. Abraham, there was nothing about him. He did not deserve to be the vehicle of God's blessing for the world. There's nothing about him that makes him worthy of God's electing grace. And in fact, in the next several chapters, as we read about Abraham, the more and more we get to know him, The more human he will become, the more we'll see that he stretches the truth when it suits him, that he mistreats his concubine when it suits him, and his own son, he will abandon them when it suits him. There's nothing about him other than God's choice that makes him worthy to do this. But that's the story that runs throughout the Bible, that God chooses unworthy people for his holy purposes to carry out his mission to redeem, remake, and renew creation. And that should not offend us. That should encourage us. Because if there's anything that we have in common with Abram, it's this, we are not worthy to be God's instruments. We're not worthy of his grace, but that's not going to stop God from calling us, from using us, from working with, through, and oftentimes in spite of us. 
That's how committed God is to, to restoring his creation and his image-bearing creatures. So why does God choose Abraham? No reason, just grace. So that's why God chooses Abraham, but, but what about what he calls him to do? God calls Abraham to go. And this going has a couple dimensions to it. There's a, there's a personal dimension and a missional dimension to it. And when we look at what God is commanding Abram to leave, he's saying, go from, from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And so each step on this journey is progressively more difficult. He's, he's separating himself progressively more and more from things that are close, near and dear. So go from your country means go from the country where you were born. And if you've ever moved to a foreign country or moved to another state, you know this is hard. It's hard to leave home. And he says, go from, from your kindred. It means your family, you know, your extended network, your people. Leaving that behind is hard, but most hard of all is, is leave your father's house, your nuclear family. And this is really hard. We don't know much about Abram at this point, but we do know that he's the faithful and loyal son. You know, one of his brothers died, but his other brother, when his father left to go out on this journey, and then they stopped at Haran, his brother Nahor stayed behind. But Abram went. So we know that Abram is a loyal, a loyal family guy. And we also know that he's wealthy. It says later that he brought all of the, the people who he had acquired with him. In the ancient world, if you had slaves, you were rich. And when he goes to Egypt in another chapter, they're going to be impressed by his wealth. And so Abraham has a lot to lose. He has a lot that it's going to cost him to leave him, leave behind and so God is asking him to leave behind safety, security. He's asking him to leave behind a life that was filled with certainty and to become a wanderer. It's this total break with what came before. And so when God does something new, there is this radical break with the old. And that's instructive for us. You know, if we want to be Christians, if we want to answer the call to discipleship, then we've got to leave behind who we were before. We've got to leave behind our sin. We've got to leave behind the things that gave us significance, the things that we relied upon for safety and security. In other words, we've got to leave behind our false gods, our false idols. When we translate God's call to Abraham into the words of Jesus, one aspect of this go is, is the words that began Jesus' proclamation of the gospel in Mark, where Jesus' first word was repent which means turn and go in another direction for the kingdom of God is near. Jesus is saying, leave behind what came before and go to this kingdom that I am going to show you. And so the call of God means leaving behind the old life marked by hopelessness and barrenness. Even if it seemed safe and secure, it wasn't going anywhere. Leave Haran for the promised land. And on this, I love what the, the, the English commentator, Matthew Henry, said. He said, many reach Haran, but fall short of Canaan. They are not far from the kingdom, but they never come thither. So that's the personal dimension of God's call to go. And that's often where we stop. We think, okay, well, I'm just going to leave behind my old life. It's about me and repentance and my sins are forgiven. But there's a missional dimension to God's call to go to that we cannot ignore and we cannot neglect. And the word mission comes from Latin missio, to send. And the truth that we see throughout scripture is that whenever God calls someone, he does so in order to send them to bless others. God calls Moses 
sends him to Egypt to liberate his people. God calls the prophet Isaiah, and he sends him to his own people, to the the people of Israel, in order to call them back to faithfulness. God sends his one and only son in order to save the world. Jesus calls and sends his disciples to proclaim and enact the kingdom. And the Spirit calls and equips and sends the church into the world for us to share the good news as well. And so to be called by God is to be sent on a mission by God, a a, a mission to bless. And five times in verses 2 or 3 of chapter 12, we see God saying that he'll bless Abraham, he'll bless him with the purpose that in him all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so God never wants us to be blessed, you know, hashtag blessed or whatever, just for ourselves. And we experience God's blessing whenever something good or unexpected or some unexpected mercy or grace comes into our life. It's right to say that we're blessed. But why does God bless us? It's only in order that we might be a blessing to others. And so if Christians, if we could have any mantra that we could get into our heads, it's that we're blessed to be a blessing. We're blessed to be a blessing. We're blessed to be a blessing. Everything we have been given is to, for use for God, for his kingdom purposes. And when we get that, we just break the cycle of selfishness and self-centeredness and pride and individualism. It breaks open, it cracks open our hearts for the world. So to be a Christian is to be a missionary with a mission to bless the world in God's name. Missionaries aren't just the people who we support who go over the world, do great things. It's awesome that we support them. But we're missionaries here They're missionaries there. We both have the same vocation. So God says, go. And he promises, I'm going to bless you. You're going to have a great name, lots of kids, you know, uh, a land too. This is, and right now these probably just seem to Abram, they could seem to Abram like idle promises, pie in the sky. These promises come, children comes to a barren, childless couple. The promise of land comes to a landless and wandering family. All Abram has to rely upon at this point are promises. Promises. And the promises of God hang upon the trustworthiness of God. Which brings me to maybe what is the most important point of all in this passage, that the call of God is always a call to faith. Always a call to leave the familiar and the comfortable behind. A call to mission, which means it's a call to enter into the unknown and the uncertain, trusting that our faith is going to intersect with God's faithfulness. And there's always this temptation. You know, we hear God's call, go. And we say, okay, well, exactly where? Where are we going? And and God doesn't even give that to Abram. He just says, go to the land where I will show you which means that God is going to lead him there. He doesn't know in advance where he's going or how he's going to get there. We just assume God told us exactly, you know, where we're going to go, and then we get to decide, do we want to go there? And we also get to decide how it is that we are going to get there. We can come up with the plan. And on this point, John Calvin is brilliant. He says, for it is better with closed eyes to follow God as our guide than by relying on our own prudence to wander through those circuitous paths which it devises for us. So friends, I felt recently like, today even, I'm walking into the unknown. I don't know what's gonna happen. You know, I, last night I, I woke up at like four in the morning saying I have no idea what tomorrow morning is gonna be like. 
You know, we haven't done, we did two services on Easter, but that's Easter, it's sort of easy, you know, like, that's like a church day, so, you know, we'll get the cheesters out, and, and that'll be fine, that'll pad the stats, or whatever, but we're embarking on this journey, and, and I have this plan, I have this hope, I have this, I picture in my head, but I also have no, absolutely no control over what happens. I'm anxious, you know, I want God to tell me, Dave, don't worry, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna bless you, everything's gonna be even better than you could imagine. And I believe that it will be better than I imagine. It's just that I understand that my imagination and God's imagination are not the same thing. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. His perspective is not my perspective. So all we can do is hear God's call. And and we can work and we can plan and we can prepare and we can pray. But at the moment of truth, we are invited to walk forward with our eyes wide shut. trusting that our faithfulness is going to intersect with God's faithfulness and that God's promises will far exceed our our feeble, small plans. And this brings me to the last thing I want to look at very briefly. How did Abraham respond to God's call? And the most simple thing that he does is he goes. He went. Faith manifests itself in obedience. So the question isn't, do you believe in God? You know, sort of some intellectual concept. Do you believe in this being? No, the the question is, do you trust God enough to follow him, to obey him? And we see what sustains Abram on this pilgrimage of faith, this journey of faith, by what he does when he reaches Canaan. He builds altars, it says, and he calls upon the name of the Lord. He worships and he prays. The text doesn't say anything about Abram attempting to convert the Canaanites, His altar stood as a monument to his commitment to what would become the first commandment, right? To have no other gods before me. Their very presence was a protest and a polemic against every other god and every other loyalty. And this is still true, that the very presence of the church as a worshiping community stands as a polemic and protest in the midst of this world. It says something without having to say anything. So Abram worshiped. And it also says that he called upon the name of the Lord, which means that he prayed. And this phrase is beautiful because it encompasses all sorts of prayer, from, from, from petition to praise. And whenever in Scripture someone calls upon the name of the Lord, they're either saying, God, you're great, or God, I'm in a really hard situation. Could you please help me out of it? That's prayer. <laughs> That's prayer. God, you're awesome. God, I need some help. And so it's these same practices, worship, prayer. That's what's going to sustain us as as we walk into this uncertain, misty future wherever God is going to lead us. But we know we can do this. We know that we can trust these promises. That's the beautiful thing. We're in a far more advantageous position than Abram ever was. Right? This God spoke out of the blue and said, follow me. And he did it. But we look in Scripture and and we see God's faithfulness, God's promises in action. Jesus left the Father in heaven, went to the far-off country to bring us home. We see that he gave up everything in order to give us everything. We see that he was obedient to God's call, even to the point of death. And we see that Jesus took the curse upon himself in order to bless us, to be a blessing. And because he did all this, we can trust him. We can answer his call and we can follow him wherever he leads us, even when we're not exactly sure where that is. 
And we can do that in hope. And in our best moments say, well, I can't wait to find out where that might be. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.